The Epcot theme park at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida, delights over 12 million visitors a year. It's been a 39-year home run by all conventional measures of success. But there's at least one person who wouldn't see it that way. Walt Disney himself. Today, Epcot is akin to a kind of permanent World's Fair, marked by the iconic spaceship Earth Ride, aka the giant golf ball. Epcot is Disney's celebration of technical innovation, international culture, and human achievement. And it's actually undergoing major renovations right now. But it's still far from the Epcot Walt designed. Because when plans for Disney World were first announced in 1966, Epcot wasn't a theme park at all. It was a city. Epcot is an acronym for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. His plans called for climate-controlled city centers, a huge cosmopolitan hotel, modern offices for businesses, state-of-the-art electric transit systems, pedestrian-focused urban design, lush green spaces, and a residential area for 20,000 people, complete with schools, parks, playgrounds, and homes outfitted with the latest technologies of the times. Walt Disney was famous for his tenacity in seeing ideas through. So what happened? I'm Scott Herms, and this is Look Both Ways, a podcast about experimentation, world-changing ideas, and the willingness to get things wrong. Each episode follows a two-act structure. First, a failed idea of the past, and second, an unsolved challenge of the present. This show is made possible by Ken and Carta, a digital transformation consultancy who believes in making the world work better for everyone, and who currently believes that it's okay for me to work there. On this week's episode, how did plans to live at the forefront of urban design become another Disney theme park? And what should we make of experimental communities as a means of solving the problems of city life, particularly when, a half century later, many of those problems haven't gone anywhere. How do you do, everyone? This is Hank Weaver. For the past year, this signature has announced the opening of Disneyland The Show. Now, it announces the opening of Disneyland The Place. The people and eyes around the world are focused on these 160 acres here in Anaheim, California. This afternoon, Disneyland, the world's most fabulous kingdom, will be unveiled before an invitational world premiere. And Disneyland are- first opened in Anaheim, California in 1955 and quickly became Walt Disney's crowning achievement. But it was actually Walt's dissatisfaction with elements of Disneyland that sparked the ambition to build what became Disney World. As urban development surrounding the park grew, he became frustrated with the elements beyond his control. Walt called Anaheim a second-rate Las Vegas and set out to build something better and bigger, way bigger. Walt was quick to denounce the idea that he would build a second Disneyland. I've never believed in doing sequels. I'd rather do something new and interesting. When people pressed him about producing a sequel to the 1933 smash hit, The Three Little Pigs, Walt replied, You can't top pigs with pigs. Makes you wonder what Walt might have to say about Disney's crusade to remake their own movies as many times as possible with as many blue Will Smiths as possible. I am not a giant. I am a genie. There is a difference. Walt was a visionary, but even his imagination failed to realize that pigs can top pigs. The now-shuttered Silver Palm restaurant of Chicago once made a sandwich called Three Little Piggies that did just that, combining deep-fried pork cutlet, bacon, and smoked ham into one gastronomic delight. Oh, and just in case you still had a working artery, it was topped with Gruyere and two fried eggs. Welcome to Chicago. 
Okay, anyway, Walt's quest to outdo himself brought him to a 27,000-acre plot of swampy Florida. The new project cycled through secret project names like Project X, Project Winter, and ultimately, The Florida Project. Also, name of a fantastic movie with William Dafoe. I highly recommend it. At the core of The Florida Project, his grand vision. The most exciting, the far, the most important part of our Florida Project In fact, the heart of everything we'll be doing in Disney World will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. We call it Epcot. That's Walt himself in a recording from 1966 unveiling the plans for Disney World to the public. It's now become known as the Epcot film. It's 25 minutes long, shot in what appears to be a large planning room in Walt Disney Studios in California. Huge maps, sketches, and miniature models plaster every available inch, some reaching so high that Walt talked to the camera from atop a ladder. If you watch the film, it doesn't take long to get a clear picture of what Walt's ambitions were at this stage of his life, or at least how he wanted to present his ambitions. I don't believe there's a challenge anywhere in the world that's more important to people everywhere than finding solutions to the problems of our cities. Epcot would be a living blueprint of the future of urban life. Walt thought the best way to create such a blueprint was to do something real cities rarely could. Start from scratch. By now, I'm sure you're wondering how people will actually live and work and move around in our community of tomorrow. Yes, we are. So in the next few minutes, we'll go into detail about some of our preliminary sketches and layouts. Remember those I said earlier? This is just the beginning. And with that thought in mind, let's have a look. The city's design is described as the radial plan. It's also called hub-and-spoke design. Paris is one of the most famous examples of a city that follows this model. It relies on a defined center and concentric circles radiating outward. If Epcot was a dartboard, the bullseye is a towering cosmopolitan hotel. As you moved away from the center, each layer would hold a different function for the city. The layer immediately surrounding the hotel would feature shopping centers, restaurants, theaters, and other nightlife attractions. But that's not all. Take it away, Disney announcer man. But most important, this entire 50 acres of city streets and buildings will be completely enclosed. In this climate-controlled environment, shoppers and theater-goers and people just out for a stroll will enjoy ideal weather conditions, protected day and night from rain, heat and cold, and humidity. Yep, you heard that right. A 50-acre, enclosed, climate-controlled city center. So, if upon hearing about Walt Disney's utopian city, you imagined a Truman Show-type dome, you're not totally wrong. But really, it's just the start. The next layer was for high-density apartment housing. One layer further out is the Greenbelt, with lush forests, protected natural areas, and beautifully manicured parks. The outermost and largest ring is the main residential area with room for 6,000 residential homes outfitted with all the latest and greatest technology. This was the key element of Walt's plan. Homes in Epcot would be constantly updated with the newest televisions, telephones, kitchen appliances, hair dryers, anything, making homes at Epcot a living, breathing showcase to American innovation. In Disney World, about 20,000 people will actually live in Epcot. Their homes will be built in ways that permit ease of change so that new products may continuously be demonstrated. 
Their schools will welcome new ideas so that everyone who grows up in Epcot will have skills in pace with today's world. Epcot will be a working community with employment for all. And everyone who lives here will have a responsibility to help keep this community an exciting living blueprint of the future. Schools will become new ideas so that everyone who grows up in Epcot will have skills in pace with today's world. We'll unpack the strange and largely problematic nature of that idea in a bit. For now, back to the plans. The veins running through each layer of Epcot is a fully electric transit system, a combination of high-speed monorail and the Wedway People Mover, smaller trains used to bring people to and from the larger monorail stations. This is one of the few elements of the original plans that did come to fruition, now known as the Tomorrowland Transit Authority People Mover in Disney's Magic Kingdom. Walt wanted to prove that most American cities weren't designed for people. They were designed for cars. So at Epcot, not only were cars not the priority, they were nowhere to be found, at least on the main level of the city. Here the pedestrian will be king, free to walk and browse without fear of motorized vehicles. Only electric-powered vehicles will travel above the streets of Epcot's central city. Cars would only operate via layer below the main city level. Trucks and utility vehicles operated at a third level below that. The level of detail to the entire film is impressive, and many elements certainly are attractive. Streets designed strictly for pedestrians. Transit systems operating this beautiful symmetrical web. This huge, expansive ecosystem with every detail planned to perfection all there to be a proving ground for what city life could be like. The plans were extraordinarily ambitious. And when talking about a planned utopian city in Orlando, Florida, governed by Walt Disney, in which 20,000 people live, work, and send their kids to school, there's a lot of reasons it might have, you know, not worked. But Walt was also very pragmatic and famously obsessive about seeing ideas through. Disneyland was once considered a pipe dream. So was the idea that a feature-length animated film could ever be successful. Then Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was released in 1937, became the craziest thing anyone had ever seen, and changed the film world forever. So, needless to say, Walt had a track record and an appetite for the seemingly impossible. Uncle Walt, as he was often known at the time, had a knack for getting people to trust his vision, no matter how grandiose. He knew just how to walk the tightrope between, yes, I know this sounds crazy, and doesn't this sound like an amazing adventure? His message at the end of the Epcot film conveys a bit of that unwavering optimism. But if we can bring together the technical know-how of American industry and the creative imagination of the Disney organization, I'm confident we can create right here in Disney World a showcase to the world of the American free enterprise system. I believe we can build a community that more people will talk about and come to look at than any other area in the world. And with your cooperation, I'm sure this experimental prototype community of tomorrow can influence the future of city living for generations to come. It's an exciting challenge. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. Speaking for myself and the entire Disney organization, we're ready to go right now. 
Unbeknownst to nearly everyone around him, Walt had been battling lung cancer and died two months after the Epcot film was made. It was his last public appearance. So what happened to the plans for Epcot? Plans for Disney World carried on. But by all accounts, the ambition, enthusiasm, and determination around Epcot died with its originator. The existence of Magic Kingdom originally was strictly there to make money in order to build Epcot. There isn't a lot of documented evidence that I'm aware of that there was ever any real effort to try to make Epcot the city even happen. It was just like, that's that was Walt's thing. So much of it was still in Walt's head. That's Dirk Libby. Dirk is a writer and associate editor at Cinema Blend and self-described amateur Disney historian. We asked Dirk, what if Walt hadn't died? Would today's Disney World be known for its high-tech prototype city that just happens to be funded by Splash Mountain? I think, you know, something like what Epcot was supposed to be probably would have existed um, if Walt had lived long enough to see it through. But a lot of people, even within Disney, never thought Epcot would work anyway. So there was certainly, without Walt there to push ahead, and there were plenty of times when Walt Disney said, hey, you know, my name's on the company, I'm going to do it. As strange as it may sound, Walt Disney, the urban designer, wasn't all that crazy of a next step in his life and career. He certainly had a talent for knowing what will entertain and inspire people. His skills may have been sharpened in the world of film and entertainment, but he wanted to apply them to bigger challenges. He wanted to be Thomas Edison or Henry Ford, not just Walt Disney, and, and do something that had a real lasting impact. Disneyland was his first proof that he could do such things. In his book, Walt Disney and the Promise of Progress City, author and urban planner Sam Genaway writes, Walt was never formally trained in urban planning, but he has made a significant impact on the way we perceive, design, and build cities because he understood the timeless way of building. The timeless way of building is a concept first introduced by architect Christopher Alexander. Alexander is one of the most influential people in modern architecture, having developed theories about human-centered design that have impacted sociology, urban design, and even modern software development. Here's the Cliff Notes version of Alexander's thinking. Certain buildings and spaces transcend time because they capture what Alexander calls the quality without a name. It's the feeling of satisfaction or contentment you get when you walk into certain rooms. Alexander says that pretty much everyone has the same reaction to these types of spaces because beauty is objective, not subjective, and can be explained by fundamental truths about humanity and the natural world. He calls them patterns. Patterns are common solutions to common problems. Whatever the design challenge, different patterns can be combined to solve it. His book, A Pattern Language, lays out 253 of them. When these patterns are present, places make us feel good. We feel welcome, whole, and at peace. When these patterns are not present, and design decisions are made not for people, but for something else entirely, well, Christopher Alexander, then what happens? You go out on the street, and you see nothing but crap. Large-scale crap and small-scale crap. A.K.A. Walt's labeling Anaheim as a second-rate Las Vegas. Or, in other words, Schaumburg. Sam Genoway argues that Walt had a strong intuitive sense for how patterns could make a space come to life. The careful planning of Disneyland's Main Street as a promenade 
Pattern number 31. Connecting activity nodes so that each is within 10 minute walk. Number 30. Train tunnels that strategically reveal and then block your view of key elements of the park, creating anticipation for the magic city. Number 10. Sitting porches that create an intimacy gradient. 127. And a rest between busy crowded areas. At Epcot, the list goes on. Pedestrian streets, 100. Tree places, 171. Web of public transportation, 16. Web of public transportation is always Spider-Man's worst weapon. Not so fast, Dr. Octopus. I will ensnare you in a web of public transportation. For Walt, the details were everything. When he saw blueprints for sidewalks at Disneyland, Walt was outraged. The plans called for square corners. People aren't soldiers, Walt said. They don't turn at sharp angles. The sidewalk corners were rounded. All reports indicate everyone survived the incident. The focus on pedestrian spaces, the climate-controlled center, the robust electric transit system, little things like rounded sidewalk corners, many aspects of Walt's plan still hold up today as seemingly effective human-centered design. By that measure, maybe Walt was onto something with Epcot. It will never cease to be a living blueprint of the future, where people actually live a life they can't find anywhere else in the world. Everything in Epcot will be dedicated to the happiness of the people who will live, work, and play here, and those who come here from all around the world to visit our living showcase. Another thing Walt's Epcot had going for it, it relied on technology that either existed or was very close to existing at the time. Many utopian-type cities proposed during the 1950s and 1960s, like Buckminster Fuller's floating cities, were often designed around very theoretical technology that nobody was close to realizing. Walt saw his plans differently. While he was absolutely determined to show what the future could be about, Epcot didn't hinge on inventing brand new technology. It was about applying existing technology in new ways and relying on American businesses to help make the vision a reality. There was, however, one part of the human experience that Walt seemed to dismiss. I am talking about freedom. You know, input, participation, some level of choices about your life and how you interact with the world. Everything you wanted as a teenager. Walt was a notorious control freak, which was likely part of what made him so successful. But his plans for Epcot took it to a whole new level. He wanted total control, and he went to great lengths to get it. First, the land itself. Disney had to buy up the 38 square miles that Disney World sits on today. If the existing landowners knew it was Walt Disney who wanted their land, they would have charged him a pretty penny. So in order to keep prices down, and the secret Florida project intact. They purchased the land via five shell companies, all legally owned by Disney. Which, that can't be possibly right, can it? Max, can we check if that's legal? Our, our producer Max is telling me that. Okay, yeah, well, right, he's saying he had no idea because he's not a lawyer. Fair, very fair. Shady or not, Walt had his land. Now just came the bit about controlling everything that happened on the land. Walt and his army of lawyers petitioned the Florida State Legislature to create the Reedy Creek Improvement District. 
a new municipality in which the Disney company could effectively be its own government and have near total autonomy within its borders. Meaning things that would normally be controlled by elected state or local government officials, you know, land use regulation, building codes, utilities, roads, bridges, fire protection, emergency medical services, would be 100% up to Walt and company. And it worked. Because it's still how Walt Disney World operates today. Author and professor Dr. Richard Fogelsong once referred to Disney World as the Vatican with mouse ears, which is super good to know the next time that I need a blessing or an indulgence from a rodent. All this because of Epcot. Stories suggest that some brave soul did muster up the courage to convey to Walt that a general lack of self-determination might be a deal-breaker for some Epcot citizens, and adjustments to the plans were made. Okay, no one's actually going to get to live in Epcot long-term. Maybe you're just going to live there for nine months. Um, and you'll have to, you know, it's like, you'll move, you'll, li- you'll move in, you'll live there for a while, and then you'll have to leave, because if we let you stay any longer, you'll get rights. <laughs> That's essentially what it came down to. Anytime you hear... If you stay any longer, you'll get rights. It's probably a sign you're about to have a bad time. Right up there with, I don't want to sound like a racist, but... And mandatory HR training. So, safe to say, Walt's plan to become a benevolent dictator of 20,000 people would have likely caused problems. Others argue the plans had a different flaw. One right in the middle of it all. It was a city built around a mall climate-controlled center full of shops, restaurants, and theaters. Which begs perhaps the obvious question, can it still be human-centered design if it's quite literally designed around a mall? Or is that better known as Disney quarterly earnings center design brought to you by Macy's? In his book Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World, author Stephen Johnson points out that while seeking inspiration for Epcot, Walt spent a great deal of time studying three sites— two shopping malls on the East Coast, and a new Neiman Marcus department store in Texas. We had to include this passage from Wonderland because the opening zinger is just too good. Johnson writes, The gap between Disney's ambition and his prior art seems a little baffling to us now, like someone setting out to reinvent the literary novel by studying the great works of Nicholas Sparks. But the fact is, Disney's expedition made a certain kind of sense. Like it or not, it was a crystal ball. If you wanted to understand something important about the way human beings would live in the year 2000, studying shopping malls was probably as good a clue as anything going in the early 1960s. There's many ways to read the story of Walt Disney's Epcot, and plenty of questions whose answers are very debatable. Would it have been completed if he hadn't died? Yeah, in some way it it probably would have. Given the resources and total control he had, could he have accelerated progress in certain areas of urban design and technology? On one hand, maybe yes. In an alternative timeline, maybe enough people do want to live there. Businesses want to invest in demonstrating their products while Disney builds his progress city, and cities don't wait for a -a once-in-a-century global pandemic to experiment with shared streets and car-free zones. On the other hand, you could argue Epcot might have caused the collapse of the Disney company. Maybe they'd spend millions of dollars building Epcot, only to learn nobody wants to live there, becoming the embarrassing face of a new Disney world. It could have been Disney's Spruce Goose. 
Florida Mosquitoes would reclaim the Reedy Creek Improvement District. Walt really does have his body frozen, the company goes under, and instead of Disney owning half the world, Star Wars, Marvel, and Pixar become subsidiaries of Ask Jeeves Enterprises. That's the fun of a show about things that almost happened. We get to speculate. Wildly. But truly one of the most compelling parts of it all, that Epcot's entire purpose was to be a model for other cities. The opportunity to experiment in a giant living laboratory, testing new ideas, proving out design concepts, all totally from scratch, and with unprecedented levels of control. Severe ethical questions be damned. That part of the original Epcot is interesting. Especially because they had the resources to build it. Steve Johnson says, while it can be easy to dismiss, so many of Epcot's core designs do have tremendous value. He writes, to this day, no one has built a progress city, which means we have no real idea how transformative it might be to see all these ideas explored simultaneously. Mall or no mall, perhaps it's time we tried. No progress city? (laughs) Well, not so fast, Mr. Johnson, because there are some folks 12,000 miles from Orlando, who are building exactly that. We'll break it down at the top of part two, right after a brief intermission. Please go out to the lobby and get yourself a drink. The way he described it is he just wants to play God. I And that, and that, that was my next thought was that, yeah. like, can you imagine, like if you were in that meeting right now in today's mm-hmm. world, you're in that meeting, your boss comes in and pitches pitches this idea to you right i like i would be thinking i'd be like i i'd be like messaging you in a side chat right now i'll be like is this communism i can't tell is this communism or fascism i can't tell it may be both i don't know it's like, yes that's exactly. did, he forget, did he forget that people can talk and think hey guys um uh so walt's birthday is coming up and i we thought that we should just get him we're gonna get him a giant lego set you're tired of the Epcot meetings. I'm tired of the Epcot meetings. So if you all could Venmo me twenty bucks, I'm gonna buy. I'm gonna buy the Death Star. I'm gonna buy the, the Death, Death Star, Star. Lego, yes. Lego yes. set, and we're gonna give it to Walt for his birthday. Shh. Be quiet. Welcome to Tenga. Tenga is a forest town currently being built in Singapore and it might be the closest modern example of Walt Disney's vision for a built-from-scratch, tech-powered city of the future. In Tenga, vehicles will run underground, making the car-free town center safer for walking, cycling, and recreation. Lush green spaces blur the lines between the natural world and urban life, including a 100-meter-wide forest corridor, safe passages for wildlife, and community farms. Waste is collected via a massive automated system as part of a massive network of smart buildings constantly using artificial intelligence to optimize wind flow, temperature, and energy use. Perhaps Tango's most impressive feature is a proposed solution to a big problem in Singapore, air conditioning. Singapore is known for its heat and humidity, so a lot of energy, usually from fossil fuels, is used to keep people cool. The solution? A first-of-its-kind solar-powered air conditioning system, 
that if adoption is widespread enough, would result in the equivalent of removing 12.6 million kilograms of CO2 from the atmosphere, or the equivalent of four and a half thousand cars from the road. For Tango's developers, it's all part of bigger ambitions to prove what's possible in sustainable urban design, including goals of net zero carbon emissions. And the Tenga project effectively is being built from scratch, repurposing land formerly used for military training. So if you're looking for a model for what cities might look like 10, 20, or even 30 years from now, Tenga Singapore is not a bad place to start. Planned cities like Tenga and Disney's Epcot certainly help make the future feel tangible and accessible. But what about the rest of the world? Of course, planners, architects, and designers would love a blank slate, but that's not how it works. City leaders must solve everyday problems and plan for future generations without shutting off the faucet of everyday life. So what does planning actually look like then? And when does the planning process risk overlooking the most vital elements of true human-centered design? To help us answer all of our existential questions, we sat down with Brenna Berman. Brenna is the founder and CEO of a Chicago-based nonprofit called CityTech, which you'll hear her share more about in a moment. Brenna is brilliant and full of fascinating stories, including some from her tenure as the City of Chicago's Chief Information Officer. This interview was a blast. I hope you enjoy it. Here's our conversation with Brenna. Brenna Berman is the founder and CEO of CityTech, a nonprofit organization focused on using technology to make cities happier, healthier, and more productive. She also served as Chief Information Officer for the City of Chicago under Mayor Rahm Emanuel, where she led the city's tech transformation and innovation strategy. Brenna, we're thrilled to have you on and thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. I'm really excited to be here. So tell us a little bit about uh, CityTech and the work that you lead. Sure. So CityTech is an urban solution accelerator. And what that means is we bring a diverse set of organizations together through a collaborative innovation model to solve problems that would otherwise really be unsolvable. Those partners might be big or small technology corporations, universities, community organizations, and sometimes even you know small single person startups. And we focus on problems that really don't have a single owner. Those kinds of problems that lots of us stand around and would say, you know, someone really needs to fix that. And that someone is generally us coordinating the many components you need to solve problems like urban flooding um, to try and really coordinate a solution around homelessness and problems that range from infrastructure, mobility challenges, and a lot of the problems that became even more relevant during COVID. How do we manage the safety and well-being in large urban areas? That's great. Those are really serious problems, you know, living in the city that I think we're all aware of, or if you live in any kind of urban area. Is there, and out of that group that you just listed, which are which are fantastic problems to work on solving, are there any that you feel that are particularly well-suited for technology? Like, is there is there a set that you just go to, oh, this is, this really, we can, technology can really close a gap that's not being closed by anybody else right now? I've never met a problem that doesn't need technology to help solve it. And I mean help solve it because um, my work at City Tech or even my work earlier as the CIO of Chicago was was never tech first, um, which seems like an odd statement coming from a CIO. But really, the problems that plague cities are about the people first. It's always been important to me in any of my jobs that you listen to the people that are dealing with the problem day to day. And in cities, those are residents. 
it can be really challenging to understand what residents need first when, you know, it's hard to put a user group together when you're talking about 3 million Chicagoans or, you know, 20 million Londoners. Um, Technology is critical when you're trying to understand the problem or drive a solution to scale. That's great, Brenna. And I really love to hear that you're using user research to drive your solutions. I think as as certainly with my experience in technology, I've worked at plenty of places where that was not a factor and we would build things that nobody wanted or needed. Um, so was there, because this has happened to us, uh, you know, and me as well, is that you go into a situation thinking you know what the problem is or what people want, but then you do the user research and you get a completely different answer. Did, did you run into that at all so far in either Chicago or in your current? Absolutely. I think one of the best examples is, and it's it's one of my favorite projects that that started in a partnership at the city and, and we continued in partnership with it at City Tech. And it's a project called the Array of Things. Um, there's a number of Chicagoans that are familiar with it. It's an enterprise grade sensor platform. It was a first of a kind. Um, it was a partnership led by the University of Chicago and Argonne that the city was a, a lead participant in. At City Tech, our role was to drive actually the resident engagement in that project. And to quickly explain, right, it was these really large scale multi-sensor nodes that were up on traffic lights. Because at the end of the day, as much as we think we know a lot about cities, we actually don't have research grade data about cities to make detailed decisions about how to better manage them. Um, and so the goal of the array of things was to collect that kind of data over five year periods. So, mm. you know, out in the weather and the wind for five years. And there are cameras in those nodes. They are still cameras that are about the resolution. This gives you an idea of the age of the project of an iPhone 7. Just <laughs> to explain to you the kind of pictures we were getting. Yeah. Nonetheless, they were cameras. And in any sort of public data collection project, the designers of that project and the public and the advocacy groups that work in this space should ask privacy and security questions. Absolutely. There were a lot of advocacy groups from the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the ACLU who were very, very concerned about those cameras, as they should be. But what we heard as the the designers and and stewards of those projects, and they were in the public right of way, right? So the city is responsible for the safety, including the privacy, right? The safety of the residents in the right of way, in the road. Um, But what we kept hearing from the advocacy groups was the residents of Chicago don't want those cameras. It invades Mm. their privacy. No cameras, Mm. no cameras, no cameras. We were pretty nervous about installing these things, right? And we said, well... You know, we have a plan to engage with the residents. We had, we did dozens of listening sessions, you know, orchestrated to get input from residents in a number of different ways. And we actually heard from very few of them that they didn't want cameras. What we heard was there are cameras all over my community that come from my landlord, from the police, Hmm. from the traffic managers. None of those cameras are capturing images that I have access to. None of that data is my data. And all of the data coming from the array of things was open data. Now, the pictures were not available, but the metadata collected from those pictures that counts was publicly available. So what we heard, the questions we got in those listening sessions was not, no cameras, you're invading my privacy, no cameras. It was, how do I get the data? How do I use the data? How can you help me analyze that data? 
So it was very different than what the advocacy groups told us we had. And I think that was the first time, certainly in my career, um, and certainly in, in the career, the progression of that project, that it was it was laid very starkly out there that what we you might hear from an advocacy group or from you know what you assume you're going to hear about the impact of a certain technology could be very different from what you hear directly from a resident if you design a methodology to go out there and collect input directly from them. And I also believe, I don't know if it was implemented at the time, but that state of Illinois has restrictions around the collection of biometric data as well, right? So and I thought, isn't it also that the resolution was not so good either as well, by design, right? You could you could have put a better camera in there if you wanted to, but by design, you just you put it so it would be difficult to do, for instance, like facial recognition. Right. It, it's the way I like to describe it because I saw some sample pictures is if you're standing at an intersection wearing your favorite winter coat, your mom would recognize you. I would. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, what we wanted to do was we needed to be able to count cars, measure distance, count people. So I wanted to know that there was a person there at 11.51 p.m. I didn't need to know who that was. So we implemented the type of technology we needed to achieve the goals of the project and, and nothing more, nothing less. You mentioned it, that you're looking at intersections. This is where you put all the array of things. Are our cities too focused on cars? I mean, obviously we, we've seen, I mean, in Chicago, for an example, we saw, and maybe it was just done poorly, but when they shut down State Street, you know, to make it a, you know, a, a more pedestrian friendly area, all the business died on it. And then it was torn up again and brought traffic back. And yet so, then suddenly people wanted to be there because it gave a sense of liveliness. But, you know, how, how do you, how do you think about that? How do you balance the needs of pedestrians versus cars versus, you know? I think that depends on the city. I've lived and worked in dozens of cities, which is something I think is, is, is something I count myself to be very lucky to have done. And the space in a given city, the amount of traffic that they have, the level of congestion actually varies, mm. right? We have highly congested cities that need to be thinking about, you know, their air quality and, and how pedestrians and bikes and motorbikes and electric bikes and and I could go on and on right scooters and cars and trucks and buses and right the modes of transportation from foot up until bus has exploded in the last five years 10 years and so there are cities that need to plan um, all cities need to plan for how to share their road space but the ultimate outcome of that is going to be very different in a highly congested old city like Paris or Barcelona, mm. where their planning has led them to carve out pedestrian districts where only, and I say only certain vehicles are allowed, like bicycles or scooters, right? And nothing with a motor is allowed. Whereas if you go to a newer city like Phoenix, right, yeah. that city was designed so much more recently that modern transportation existed when Phoenix was built. So it, it is sort of an, an unreasonable thing to think that their conclusion would be no cars in the city limits of Phoenix, where their focus might be more on how do we continue to evolve our city to support electric charging, given the rate mm. of you know, the evolution of EVs as, as fleets turn to EVs and, and personal ownership of EVs comes about so quickly. Right. So car ownership is likely to continue in a city like Phoenix, but more and more of those cars are going to require charging infrastructure. So cities are different. Their histories matter. And I think what's most important is that our 
planning methodologies evolve to leverage data so that planning can be precise because the the best example I will give you, and this is actually around parking as opposed to pedestrian usage, but there are formulas in cities for how much parking should be required when a city grants a zoning permit mm. for building a building, yeah. right? So there's going to be this many people living here, so we need this many parking spaces. In a lot of places, that formula hasn't changed for 50 years, but car ownership has changed drastically in 50 years. So why is that formula still the same? So our planning tools need to change and need to become more data-driven so that the cities can reflect the technology and the way that people are living in them now and the way they're going to be living 30, 50, 100 years from now. That answer is not going to be the same in Paris, Phoenix, or Beijing. So I guess along those lines, you know, obviously you're saying we have to fit the right solution. It's not, the, it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. So. What does good human-centered design mean for you in, in those, along those lines? That's actually a really good question. I, you know, I'll go back to what I said before is I think it comes down to doing design and technology with residents and not to them. So I think that good human-centered design, whether you're talking about product design or real estate district design, all of that is about communication and education and actually listening and creating that feedback loop. That does take longer, but I think ultimately you end up with a better product that has responded to the actual needs of the resident who actually understands what's required. I'm not saying that that means you have to do everything the resident says because not every resident is actually an expert on the art of the possible. I am saying that you need to listen to them respond to their concerns and their interests and their inputs and communicate back to them the reasoning behind the decisions, the design decisions that you've made throughout your process. So in this episode, we're talking about planned cities, and I believe you have a special relationship to planned cities. I do. Um, and I didn't know this until I got to college. So I was born in Holyoke, Massachusetts, which is a, a relatively small city in the western end of the state. It is the first planned city in the U.S., and, and as someone who grew up, you know, to become a, a student and a lover of cities, um, and I think a lot about planned cities and, and how organic cities can become better planned, it's a city on the Connecticut River. It was an industrial city with uh, big looms and paper factories mm. that, that my grandfather went on to work in later in, in life, et cetera. But it was the first planned city around um, taking advantage of that water power to drive industrial industrial production. And and planned down to um, the owners of these huge factories. And this goes back to like the labor movement early in the U.S.'s history, right? They planned for the recreation of their employees. And it is the mm. city where actually volleyball and basketball were invented. Oh, yeah. Yeah, to maintain the, the health and vigor of their employees. It was very planned. It's fascinating. Yep. So the, the, the planned city that we're talking about is Epcot, which uh, I'm sure you're aware that Disney did have, have much grander plans for it than uh, what it turned out to be. I mean, do you feel like that was a valid model what he was going on? I mean, is that something we really should be doing? Should we have a, a planned city that models these best behaviors? Um, what is, so I'm gonna get this wrong. What is it like man plans, God laughs? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I think that that, I think that that is true. And I think it is true for cities. There's, you know, city planning is a discipline that even for cities that are, are organic, like Chicago, right? 
the city has a, a department of planning now that's responsible for the disciplined growth and management of, of Chicago now. I don't know that it is good or bad. I think sometimes it is misguided in the idea that you can plan everything out in a city and that you know people and people's culture and habits and aren't going to then come in and muck it all up, which I think is the best <laughs> part about cities. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's an example, there's a city in South Korea, which I apologize because I am not going to get the name right, that was planned and built in partnership between the, the Korean government, the federal Korean government and Samsung. And it is a smart city. It is amazing in a number of ways, right? It's a full circular economy in the sense that the you know, all of the water is captured and recycled, all of the trash is managed, all of the, so it is green, it is walkable, it is all of those things from an environmental perspective and a land use perspective. And and there were all of these incentives to encourage people from Seoul to move there. And, and people did because there were lots of incentives and blah, blah, blah. And they got there and there was there were no music clubs, right? Mm. Um, blues music is a huge thing in South Korea. And there were no blues nights clubs. There were no cafes. Like all of the things that if you've ever been to Seoul, a lot of the things that make Seoul wonderful, which are like the culture of it, none of those things were there. And people left. All the people, like, and they gave up on like the incentives kind wow. of delivered over time. They punted on those incentives and they all went home to Seoul. And the designers of the city were like, wait a minute, this has all the stuff people should want. It's affordable and it's clean and the air, like all the things that make Seoul difficult, the congestion and the traffic. And it didn't have any of those, but it also didn't have any of the things that make cities vibrant and exciting, the music and the food and the, and so now they actually are working with a number of like resident groups one around music and one around mm. art and one around food. And, and they're now trying to build the culture, which is going to be interesting to watch. So you can, you know, you have the opposite side of that. You have all these planned cities in China that are actually empty. So I think what doesn't work with cities, is I don't think you can build it and they will come because you can beautifully plan infrastructure. I don't think you can plan humanity and that's what cities are. So I think there's a balance and what I think data can provide to city planning, believe it or not, because I'm going to use humanity and data in the same sentence, is I think data can provide insight to humanity and what humanity needs to be happy and healthy in cities as they grow and change. So that's the planning that I think can happen, whether you're looking at a new city, like an actual greenfield development or the continued development of an existing city like Chicago or London or Beijing. Yeah, that makes sense. Or Epcot. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel that there's any, you know, obviously you're biased to having held your post in Chicago, but are there any cities that you feel are really leading out in adapting and using technology that are really sort of showing the way for other cities? Singapore is always interesting because they're always ahead of the curve on technology. Singapore is also hard to hold up as an example because they don't always share what they're doing. So mm. it can be hard to pull from them those examples, but they're doing something I find fascinating because the scale is incredible. It's a small city and it's a city state. So their, their need to collaborate to do something is they are an island, so they are insular. Um, and that makes it easy sometimes to do these scale projects. But working with a, a technology company built a full digital twin of their city. So they have a full digital model down to every tree. And the problem, they, they did that because there were a number of 
of large scale issues they were trying to solve, one being their air quality issues. And the air quality challenges in Singapore come from the factories in Malaysia. Now, they certainly can't do anything about the particulates produced by the factories in Malaysia, right? That's an international issue that they can't weigh in on um, or that they can't address. What they're doing is changing the architecture that they zone to turn the northern end of Singapore into a fin so that as the smog comes south from Malaysia, it will split around the island hmm. and, and flow past the interior of the island along the outside and go past Singapore, preserving more of the interior air quality in the island. That's planning and technology and construction at a scale that I find mind-boggling. You touched on it briefly in your answer, the uh, urban digital twin. You talk about that a little bit more. We're familiar with it from a tech standpoint, but maybe not everyone listening is. Uh, it is almost for once named for exactly what it is. So, you know, you have um, any structure. So you could pick something smaller, right? You have a real house, right? And that house has walls and a roof and floors and even the furniture inside, et cetera. And you want to do things to that house. You want to add a porch. You want to move the furniture around. Those are big moves. So before you make those investments to say add an addition, you want to plan for that. So one way to do that would be to build a virtual rendering of that house. So you have everything that house has rendered in the virtual world, right? Digitally. So you can see and manipulate the roof and the walls and the furniture and maybe even the people inside. And so you can actually digitally see what say an addition to the house would do to the footprint in the yard, how you might need to furnish it, what it might do to the stability of the foundation. You can make all of those decisions and see the impact of that addition virtually before you go ahead and invest in it in the real world. The idea of a digital twin at the city level is immense. We actually built what is essentially a digital twin of just the underground infrastructure of the city, working with a number of partners. Um, it, it may not surprise many Chicagoans to know, and this is not just a Chicago problem, there is not a city, this is probably true, there's not a city in the world, but certainly in North America, that actually understands all of the infrastructure under the street. And, and it's because it's, it's very hard to map. It's changed by a number of partners, right? The city owns the water pipes. The telecom companies own their pipes. There's the gas company. There's, I mean... If you go back far enough, right? There's telegraph pipes and nobody owns those anymore because the telegraph company went out of business. So across North America, there is an actual accident caused by underground construction one time every 60 seconds in a given day. Wow. Now that accident might be they nick the broadband cable and you and I are annoyed because our Wi-Fi, like our, our wireless goes out. No, that's that's life-changing that you can't lose Wi-Fi. That well, it's worse if the gas main blows up. Yeah, yeah that's true. So, so there's a range from, you know, irritation, but money lost if you're running your company, right, to mm -hmm. loss of life. And the, the market impact to that is about $360 million a year. So we engaged in a project, a large project with a number of partners to create, not to create a digital twin for Chicago, though... Um, the pilot was to create a digital twin for three full blocks where Chicago was doing a major water main replacement. And as someone who grew up on the East Coast, I think sometimes in Chicago, 
if you're from there, you don't necessarily realize we take for granted. We don't look out our windows in Chicago and see power lines all the time. We actually have unobstructed views. And that is because so much of our utilities, all of our utilities are underground. It, it has a lot of benefit, right? Our city is, I think, is more beautiful because so much of our utility is underground. But the added benefit to that is the amount, is, is the difficulty of the construction when we need to touch that. One of the things that this tool, that this application that we built does is it cuts the time, the planning of an underground project and the execution of that project by somewhere between 13 and 20%. And that's time that you and I aren't sitting in traffic because of that construction, which, you know, it's hard to put a dollar amount on that, but I'll take it as a Chicagoan who sits in that traffic. Very good. Did you ever play Sim City? Maybe once or twice. (laughs) (laughs) You feel like it helps you in your current job or? (laughs) You know, there are actually, you laugh, there are online classes that my son is taking, right? This is what you do during a pandemic with a 10 year old that is taught by a a college level urban planning professor. And he uses SimCity to help my son learn about urban planning. So don't we be making fun of SimCity? I wasn't, I I love SimCity. I think it's a great tool. So, So Brenna, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for sharing your insights. It's been really helpful to sort of understand how groups like yours are thinking about ways we can live better through you know, technology and community and using human-centered design. So knowing what you know, what technology do we have now that you feel is most promising to help us uh, in the near future deal with some of the challenges that you've laid out? Um, well, one, thank you, Scott, for having me. This has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. You know, Looking out 10 years, I think the technologies that excite me the most are the ones that create access for people because I think that there's a lot of folks that have issues that could be easily addressed by the right technology that would make it easier for them to enjoy the city. In a lot of ways, you know, a hundred years ago, this would have been the elevator, right? Where lots of people who couldn't access the L were able to access the L when we began to put elevators in every station. So the elevator 10 years out from now could actually be things like personal air quality monitors that make it easy for a kid who has asthma to be out and about because they know how to navigate the city better by where it's going to be clean and easy for them to breathe. A navigation system for someone who is either hard of hearing or seeing impaired, that means they can go all the places that I can just because they're otherwise able than I am. And that's important. I want to be clear for two reasons, not just because I would hope that any city, but I always think about Chicago because that's home, not only because that means they would be able to access all the places in the city that I can, but also because that means I'll be able to interact with them. I'm more likely to meet them Mm. out at the park or the bar or the wherever. Um, And that's going to make my experience of Chicago that much more rich because the the bar of accessing the resources of Chicago is going to be all that lower. And so for me, all of the technologies that are emerging right now, the most important ones are the ones that lower that bar of access. And whether that's access to infrastructure, access to resources like jobs and healthcare and education, or you know, access to just being out in the public space, they're important to those people who struggle with those barriers today, but they're just important to those of us who don't because we're missing out because we don't know those other folks that can't enjoy Chicago the way the way you know I can right now. So those are the things I look forward to or, or anything that, that bashes through a barrier to somebody else. 
Thanks again, Brenna. You can learn more about CityTech and all the extraordinary work they do at citytech.org. Thank you to Dirk Libby for helping us understand Uncle Walt's unrealized dream of Epcot. And thank you to Walt Disney for giving us the chance to dream about a world where Florida is even weirder. That's a wrap. This episode was produced by Max Parcell. Chris Mitchell is our sound engineer. Music was written by Ethan Parcell. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new episodes and follow us on Instagram for additional info about each episode. Please let us know what you think of the show. If you liked it, give us a five-star rating on your podcast dispenser of choice. Or if you prefer the old-fashioned way, be like Walt Disney and make a 25-minute long film of what you think we should be doing with this podcast and then secretly by Swampland in Florida. (laughs) That sounds like too much work. Merely wish upon a star in your dreams come true. See you next episode.